when we allowed our bodies to become temples of the Holy Spirit, our spiritual struggles really began. Until then, we pretty much just lived a fleshly life. Our spiritual nature was limited to what has been called a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man. We knew something was missing, but unless we had godly parents who taught us about God and introduced us to Jesus, we didn't know what it was. We had some sense of right and wrong, and we generally tried to do as instructed and to make choices that were supported by the the culture into which we were born. And whether we recognized it or not as such, we did struggle with good and evil. So every man has spiritual struggles. But it's only when that God-shaped vacuum is actually filled by the Spirit of God that spiritual warfare really begins. That's when the flesh is really challenged by the Spirit. That's when the black dog is confronted by the white dog. And that's when we have to start choosing which dog to feed. And as we noted last week, when we feed the black dog, it's evidenced by deeds of the flesh. By things like immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. Sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, and carousing. And if we practice such things, if they are a regular part of our life, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. Because they give evidence to the fact that we are not in the kingdom of God. On the other hand, if we are in the kingdom of God, it too will become evident. If we are feeding our spiritual nature, what we've called our white dog, evidence of the Spirit's activity in our life will be seen. And Paul says it will be seen as fruit of the Spirit. Let's take a look at that produce this morning. We're continuing our study in Galatians. We're in chapter 5, ready for verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, the first thing I think we should note is that while Paul spoke of the deeds of the flesh in the plural, he does not say fruits of the Spirit. He says the fruit of the Spirit And it's in the singular. 
He's not picturing a lot of separate fruits popping up in our life. You know, a banana here, an orange there, and a, and a kiwi somewhere else. Nor is he picturing the fruit of the Spirit as he does the gifts of the Spirit, as a variety of things, with some having one and others another. He sees the fruit of the Spirit more like a cluster of grapes than he does a fruit basket. He sees it as one fruit, the same fruit, growing in all of us. Now, there are a lot of sweet things on the cluster, but it's only one fruit. They're all kind of like grapes, and they're all connected to the same vine. That means we should not think of the fruit of the Spirit as separate and distinct characteristics we should see developing in our life, or that we should assume it's to be expected and acceptable to have one and not another. We should see this one fruit developing and growing as a unit. Again, it's true. There are individual grapes in the cluster, but they're all grapes. And they're all the same fruit of the Spirit. With that in mind, let's examine the grapes that must be in every Cluster. Paul begins with love, with agape. If the Spirit of God is within us, that Spirit will be evidenced in our life by the same kind of love that characterizes God. A love that one commentator described as unmerited, transforming, and unchangeable. A love that is far less a feeling than a doing. A love Paul pictured with these words. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices With the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If the Spirit of God is within us, it will be seen in the way we treat others. It will be seen in the way we act. It will be seen in the joy reflected in our life. The word for joy shares a common root with grace, and they're both gifts from God. It's related to happiness, but goes much deeper. You know, happiness depends on circumstances. Joy doesn't. Joy is an expression of confidence in the goodness of God and His will for us. So if the Spirit of God is within us, we will be able to rejoice always as Paul admonishes us to do in Philippians 4.4. We may not be happy all the time, but we will have a deep-seated joy that will enable us to go through anything confidently and positively.
Now, the most popular greeting in the New Testament is a form of the word for joy. And it's often linked to the next grape in the cluster, peace. Peace refers to both inner tranquility and the lack of conflict. And they're interrelated. If we have a sense of well-being, we will tend to be in harmony with others. And if we are at peace with God, insofar as it depends on us, we will be at peace with all men. And like joy, a sense of peace does not depend on circumstances. It, too, is based on our confidence in God and his goodwill for us. The importance of peace in the life of the believer is evidenced by the fact it's mentioned 80 times in the New Testament. It's found in every book of the New Testament. If the spirit within is overcoming the lusts and anxieties of the flesh, we will have a peace that passes understanding, a peace that won't make sense to the world. And that peace within will be seen in our patience with others. The word used here for patience isn't the word for endurance under trials or pressure. It's the word for long-suffering, forbearance, tolerance. It's the ability to put up with people. It comes from the words for long and temper, from makros and thumos, the outburst of anger we looked at last week. It's the ability to keep our temper under check when dealing with others. Chrysostom said, it's the grace of a man who could revenge himself, but doesn't. It's most often used of God's attitude toward us. And if he is in us, it will be seen in our attitude toward others. Our general disposition toward people in general will then be one of kindness. Now, Jesus used this word with reference to his yoke. When he said his yoke is easy, the word he used can also be translated kind. Being kind. Being yoked to him is kind. It makes life easy easier. So kindness is that quality that makes life easier for those who are yoked to us. If Christ is making life easier for us by going through life with us, we will make it easier for others. And we'll do so not only by being kind to them, but by also doing that which is good for them. Goodness will therefore also be seen in our life. Goodness describes that which is beneficial in its effect. It's hard to define in Greek or English because it's ultimately judged by what it accomplishes. It may actually include unpleasant things like rebuke and correction. 
But even then, it's expressed in a way that reflects God's willingness to do whatever is necessary to bring about that which is good in our life. It's the nourishing part of a fruit. That which makes us strong and healthy. And that strength is seen in our faithfulness. Now, faithfulness is the same word as faith. But when it's used in this context, it has more to do with a person's faithfulness than with his faith, per se. It's that which springs from someone's faith in God. That which makes him faithful to God and to others. As we can count on him, so can others count on us. Gentleness is a word that's also translated meekness. Now, we have some misconceptions of meekness. In Bible study, I've talked about Casper Milk Toast. And all the younger set look at me like, huh? That's not a picture of meekness. Meekness describes an animal with all of its spirit under control. Aristotle described a gentle person, a meek person, as someone who is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. I like that. A gentle person is therefore someone who exhibits self-control. Self-control is the mastery of self It's appetites and passions. It's the refusal to give rein to impulses and desires. Interestingly, however, self-control does not come from ourself. It comes from the spirit within. It is up to us to feed the white dog enough to dominate the black dog So it can be expressed. But like all the fruit in the cluster, it's what the Spirit is producing within us. And since this fruit comes from the Spirit, Paul says there's no law against it. It's been noted that this is probably an understatement used for rhetorical effect. Paul has said the law was given to restrain evil, but these qualities do not need to be restrained. Hence, no law opposes them. These are not matters of law. These are the produce of the Spirit. You can't pass a law that people have these things. They come from the Spirit of God. Obviously, therefore, the fruit of the Spirit will not be seen in our life if we don't have the Spirit of God Within us. Now, we may have some characteristics similar to the fruit, but we won't have the actual fruit of the Spirit apart from the fruit. It doesn't come from us, it comes from God. But if we want the Spirit to bring forth such fruit from our spiritual garden, we do have a very important role to play. We must prepare the soil from which it can grow. Verse 24. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh 
with its passions and desires. The first thing we must do if we want the fruit of the Spirit to be seen in our life is to make certain we belong to Christ. He is the source of the fruit. He said it himself in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We cannot have the fruit of the Spirit apart from Christ. We must abide in Him, and He must abide in us. So how does that happen? How do we abide in Him and He in us? Well, we abide in Him when we trust Him. When we count on Him to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And we allow him to be our Savior and our Lord. But how does he abide in us? How does he get inside of us? Obviously, we have to invite him in. We have to welcome him into our life. He will not force his way into anyone. And we have to make room for him. In fact... We have to get entirely out of the way before he can come in. Paul put it this way back in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. A holy God cannot inhabit an unholy place. That's why a crucifixion of self must precede His coming in to abide within us. Sin must be dealt with. We must crucify self before the sinless Son of God can come in. Paul made that clear in Romans 6.6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. He says a similar thing here in Galatians 5.24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, there is a subtle but significant difference between what was said in Paul's other references to our crucifixion and and this one. The others were in the passive voice. They described something that was done to us. We were crucified. We submitted to it, but it was done to us. Here it's in the active voice. We do the crucifying. We actively crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, it is in the past tense. It's something we did in the past, but that does not mean it's over. A crucifixion takes time. It's a slow death. And if we decide to leave the cross, the crucifixion stops. 
the bystanders had it right. Jesus could have saved himself by coming down off the cross. And we can keep the flesh with its passions and desires alive by taking them off the cross. Some seem to do this on a fairly regular basis. But if we do, the deeds of the flesh will crowd out the spirit, the fruit of the spirit, like weeds taking over a garden. If we want the fruit of the spirit to grow and be readily evident in our life, we must keep our passions and desires on the cross. If we will properly prepare and faithfully tend to the garden of our soul, it will go into production. Verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Fruit cannot be manufactured. It has to grow. You cannot make a cluster of grapes. It can only come from the source of all living things. If we've yoked ourselves to the source of life and stay in union with him, we will live and we'll live forever. We will live by the power of the Spirit. And if we walk by the Spirit, that source of life will produce fruit in our life. But we do have to walk by the Spirit in order for that to happen. And the word for walk that Paul uses here is not the ordinary word for walk. It comes from a word meaning a row. And it signifies to walk in a line. Paul is saying we have to get in line with the Spirit. We must get in step with the Spirit. We must stay in step with the Spirit if we expect to see the production of fruit in our life. And we better expect it. We better expect it because the production of fruit in our life is not optional. We can't say, oh, I'm not going to worry about that. I'm going to walk my own path through life. You can't do that. You have to walk in step with the Spirit. If you're going to produce the fruit of the Spirit. And you must produce the fruit. Christ made that clear in a rather frightening parable. And he began telling them this parable. A certain man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir. 
for this year or two until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. If it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. If we're not bearing fruit, what's going to happen? We're going to be cut down. It's not optional. Thankfully, we have a patient vineyard keeper giving us a little time to allow our lives to be cultivated, to allow us the privilege of, of working on that garden in our soul, surrendering to the Spirit, feeding the white dog, so some fruit can become evident. But if it's not becoming evident, there will come a time when the vineyard keeper will simply say, Cut it down. It's wasting space. This is serious business. This is not optional Christian living. <laughs> this is the heart and soul of Christian living. If the fruit of the Spirit is not evident in your life, you are not in Christ. Do you understand that? We can't say, oh, I got this one. I don't have that one. I'm not going to worry about that. Worry about it all. It's a package deal. If the fruit of the Spirit is not evident in your life, the day will come when you'll simply be judged as unfruitful. You'll be cast out. You'll be burnt. You'll be gone. This is frightening. This is frightening. There's also a great promise here. Because it's not of us. It's not of us. It's of the Spirit. If we will get serious about the production of fruit in our life, fruit will become evident. Because the fruit of the Spirit comes from the Spirit. We've got a hand to play in it. We've got to make certain we are doing our part. But it comes ultimately from him. Is your all on the altar, the song says. Are we yielding him our body and soul? If not, we better get serious about doing so. And if we are, we should be excited about the fruit that's growing in our life and is becoming more prevalent and sweeter every day because it's from the Spirit of God. That's the life I want for you. I really don't want to just frighten you into a Christian walk. I want to hold out to you a promise that's something you'll want to lay hold of. But never assume it's an optional thing. It's not. Is your all on the altar? Let's stand.